Welcome to Pharmacy View Technology and Pharmacy Business Podcast Series, where we provide regular interviews with pharmacists and key industry people within the Australian pharmacy and associated industry. In each podcast, we look to discuss aspects of pharmacy operation and how technology is improving or interacting with each guest's current role or pharmacy-related business. I'm your host, Scott Carpenter, and today's guest is sponsored by Shopfront Solutions, leading the way in digital marketing and communications, providing a cloud-based platform for pharmacies to manage all of their digital and print collateral and messaging. I'm talking today with Sarah Stoddard from Vitality Law Australia, where Sarah's passion is providing legal knowledge and education to individuals and small business owners in the healthcare industry. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. That's great to hear. Sarah, um, well, I've no doubt there'll be a few listeners today who know you. For others who haven't had the pleasure of working with you, who is Sarah Stoddard? So I'm a commercial lawyer with expertise in the healthcare industry, particularly pharmacy. So I've been working with pharmacists for around about the last eight years in all facets of their business, from transactions to approvals, leasing, employment matters, and occasionally disciplinary matters as well. I also impart as much education and knowledge as I can to pharmacists, so I've been involved in conferences as well as providing training sessions as part of a business breakfast series. In addition to my work as a lawyer, I'm also a mum and I've got, you know, I live in Brisbane but work with pharmacists across Australia. Thanks, Sarah. So again, I've uh, had the opportunity to listen to a, a couple of other um, uh, podcast sessions that you've done. So if there was a key area that you work in with pharmacists, what, what would that be? I think probably it would be the transactional side coupled with the approvals side, which often comes out of the transaction. So obviously, if someone's buying a pharmacy, that's a transaction, but there needs to be an approval of that by way of an um, application to state and federal regulator. So that's my main um, areas of work with pharmacists. Okay. And yeah, look, I certainly from my background over a few years ago, I, I got involved with a little bit of that. So I understand from that perspective, I might put a link into, or actually I noticed on your webpage, there's a couple of links to your other podcast. So I'll, I'll refer people there if they're interested in hearing that. But uh, I also noticed you do a little bit of work around leasing and also employment law. Is, is there some things that you can tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So obviously, a majority of pharmacy premises are leased. Um, a couple of them are owned, which is fortunate for that pharmacist, but mainly they are leased. And that means working with landlords, obviously, for new lease negotiations, transfer of leases, renewals, uh, interesting during the COVID period, rent relief was obviously a big issue. Employment law, there is obviously the Pharmacy Industry Award, and that is what governs most employment relationships in the pharmacy industry. But just like any business where there's staff, issues do come up. So I look after every element of the employment relationship, from the onboarding of a new staff member to managing their employment, I suppose, including things like flexible working arrangements or an unfortunate event such as injury, right through to working with employers around terminations or performance management issues. Cool. And uh, I'm sure there's been a few people out there that have been involved in those sessions and uh, they can be challenging at best. I might chat a little bit later on with you around that um, employment law, particularly around the technology side of the business. We uh, we recorded another podcast a, a day or two ago around data and cybersecurity. And, and certainly one of the things that came up is that you know, the greatest risk in that area is sometimes the way employees use or access the um, the technology systems in their platform. So uh, we might have a chat a little bit 
later about that and to what the risks are within you know relative yeah, to employees sure. employee law so i also noticed from your linkedin profile page you director with the queensland alliance for mental health i, I might have that wrong don't I? I am. yes yeah, so i'm a non-executive director with director, the alliance yeah. i've yep. been on the board for about two years been involved with the alliance coming up to five years i think I started on the governance subcommittee there and was appointed to the board shortly after. I now chair the, the governance subcommittee and am actively involved on the board. So for those that don't know, the Queensland Alliance for Mental Health is the peak body for the community mental health sector uh, in Queensland. And it obviously represents the state at a federal level as well. So some very interesting work being done there, particularly around the introduction of the NDIS system. And we've actually just released our new strategic plan which is about how the mental health sector is going to look in the future, uh, which is very interesting coming out of the COVID environment where obviously mental health has been a really big issue for many people. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And certainly um, sitting here in Victoria, we're uh, celebrating today because we're well and truly out now. There's still a few restrictions around the place, but certainly the the extended period of lockdown has uh, created some real challenges for us down here. So that's a really broad spectrum then, I I guess, but it gives you a a really good focus on health, health businesses and the health industry. So is that your passion or is is that where you've fallen into? How, How did that all come about? I have to admit I did fall into it, Scott. It wasn't something that I thought I'd end up in. As some people may be aware, my father, Stephen Stoddart, is also a solicitor and has been in the health industry for 40-odd years. So I got in it, I suppose, under his guide and leadership and having worked with him for a period of eight years, and that's sort of how it all became about. It, It is not an area of law that we learn at university. You can't buy a textbook on it, but it is an area that I certainly enjoy and am now very passionate about. And as I mentioned, I particularly enjoy educating pharmacists on the business side of their business because I understand that's not something they actually learn about at university either. Uh, correct. No, that's really good. So, so on that note, then let's move into, I guess, the focus of the discussion today is around the technology that um, you use or interact with. And and we had a brief discussion the other day, particularly around the COVID environment and the remote location working. Now, I would imagine with sale of business or transactions across Australia, you've done a fair bit of remote work with them anyway. But has this ramped up? And and what systems and processes do you use? You know, if if there was a pharmacist listening to this today, what what areas would they need to potentially work different? Not being able to meet with you face to face. I've worked with pharmacists across Australia for the, for my whole time in pharmacy, so it's not foreign to me, and certainly wasn't foreign when COVID came about, which is a good thing. Obviously, the working from home arrangements have made things a bit more challenging, although it certainly, with technology, has enabled things to remain on foot, um, obviously with the use of email and what have you. Fortunately, exchange of contracts and and notices are are permitted by email, and that's often expressly um, referred to in the contract. So that means we can still get matters started and we don't need to wait for the post. That obviously gives um, certainty for both parties faster, as well as contributing to lower costs. For some people, that exchange of contracts by email is something that's new. A lot of people still are used to working on paper and expect that the contract does need to be sent around by post, whereas that's not the case. So technology certainly has helped there, and it's good that I suppose the contracts had provision in that before COVID times, um, so that you know, we didn't have to be madly scrambling to change documents. Then, of course, once you're in that contract phase, there's often due diligence 
data rooms and Dropbox have been a great resource um, for the exchange of information for due diligence. So again, historically, some people have been handed, you know, wads of paper by a seller or the, it's gone through the accountant, whereas now you can exchange data information on those platforms, um, which is obviously, again, more time and cost effective. In addition to that, I understand that a lot of these platforms or other programs on computers actually can assist with interpreting the data. And you'll appreciate with pharmacy businesses, there's a lot of data to interpret. So the most assistance you can get with that. I guess, again, Sarah, I've I've made reference to my history and a few other podcasts, and, and I've certainly been around in the time where, you know, big, thick envelopes of information would turn up. And uh, I guess the reality today is that it's all potentially live. It's, it's shared documents. It's shared or secure, but um, but shared information. Mm. Um, does have you found that from a, a pharmacist um, and a pharmacy team who are always busy? We we know that um, that this is a uh, has, has improved the way that we get information to the pharmacists and the pharmacy teams or the, or the buyers and sellers, or is is it still a challenge given how busy they can be? It has improved the way that information is um, provided and exchanged between parties. But as you have quite correctly identified, we are dealing with very busy professionals here. So I suppose whilst the data is being made available to them quicker and more in a more accessible manner, they still need to find that time to interpret. And I think that's where programs, as well as enlisting the assistance from their advisors, and commonly that's their accountant, has really helped them because obviously... Yeah, just because it's there more quickly uh, doesn't mean there's more hours. Yeah, so and that that was I guess just confirming that it was the use of the likes of cloud-based or internet-based data uh, data rooms and and Dropbox facilities. Yeah. So at any point in time, um, now I, I sometimes have the really bad habit of waking up early in the morning, and uh, as much as you're not meant to, you know, I'll, I'll jump on and do a little bit of work while my mind is fresh, <clears throat> clear it up. And, and I guess it's the advantage of being able to work in these shared documents with these shared rooms without having someone's email or phone kind of ding or beep at two o'clock in the morning because I've sent them an email. Absolutely. And I think too it assists with version control um, because if you're getting a document by email working on it, you don't actually know whether the other person, particularly from a solicitor's point of view, is working on that document at the same time. And then, of course, if you're making amendments and so are they, it becomes very difficult to know which document is the current document. So these programs certainly assist with version control as well, which is really important. I should just add that during the course um, of this year, I am aware there's been a few uh, litigious matters as well. I'm not directly involved in them, but it's interesting seeing the courts move online and parties uh, adopting that process as well. So these are pharmacy litigation matters um, and working with the courts uh, on platforms like Dropbox as well as online courtrooms has been very interesting to observe. Yeah, no, look, I, again, as, a, as an example, I was um, uh, working with a colleague of mine on a, on a business presentation in the last week and, and we were, were using a shared document and uh, we basically decided, uh, not that there was two differing points of view, but it was just easier that we both had the document open online and we were both making amendments to it and watching them happen as as mm. we were typing kind of thing. So it's almost like you're in the room talking to someone, but you're working on this document from a remote location, which which to me is now the new norm and, and not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so Sarah, if we talk about um, technology and the, the the buying and selling in pharmacies, I, I think something that came to my mind 
And, and again, you mentioned some of the challenges in one of your other podcasts that I listened to, that the sale of business is, is extremely multifaceted. Um, you know, you're buying a pharmacy business, but you're buying, you know, all of the, the technology platforms that are already in place. And, and so is it, has it been easier or is it complex? Um, you know, if a pharmacist is looking at buying or selling a pharmacy, where, do you, where does the systems like the websites and the social medias and the email platforms sit? Does, that, that obviously forms part of the, the business, but you're, you're dealing with um, third-party entities here, aren't you? Yeah, you absolutely are. And interestingly, despite social media really being entrenched in our lives now, the definition of business assets, at least in the Queensland standard um, contract, isn't actually inclusive of social media. Um, so that means that when acting for a buyer, we really need to turn our mind to whether or not there is social media linked to this particular business as well as websites. Um, and if there is and the buyer wants to continue with those, to ensure that they are put into the contract that they transfer across. That, of course, means getting passwords and usernames from the seller, and that can be challenging, particularly where those um, business pages are linked to the seller's personal Facebook or Instagram account um, or whatever other social media platform they're using. So that's one challenge, is uncoupling from personal accounts. But you're absolutely right that these are third-party platforms which um, raises an interesting point in terms of, you know, you hear about Facebook shutting pages down if there's particular It's very interesting in terms of transferring a Facebook page then to the liability of previous posts and where that actually sits. Now, I haven't had um, an opportunity to explore that in a litigious sense or had any challenge to it. It's just an observation. So social media accounts is certainly something that is always interesting. Also, just the software that pharmacies use generally. So obviously, um, they've got, you know, whatever system they're using, whether it be Fred or, you know, the other ones that are available to them. If the uh, buyer wants to continue using those same programs, then that is easy. But if the buyer wants to introduce new programs, you often have a situation where the buyer from day one wants to have those programs available and running on their systems, but they don't actually own the pharmacy until um, that, that day one. So it makes it hard for a buyer to set up their systems because understandably the seller doesn't want to let them in to their computer systems and IT, you know, particularly the sort of behind the scenes IT to change things around because um, obviously that presents risk for the seller in continuing to operate their business appropriately, but also in the event there is a delay or, um, of course, if the contract does happen to crash, then their systems will be compromised by the buyer. So technology, whilst being a huge part of our lives um, for a long time now, there's still these quirks and things that come up. Um, and, of course, technology is changing so fast, you have to keep up with it and always think about what could happen, um, even if it hasn't happened. Yeah, and, and I would imagine then you know, part of the due diligence process would have to include you know, digging in and, and, and discovering all that because um, in some instances, a seller may not have thought about that or it might not be part of an existing checklist. So, so it's almost like every purchase sale of business would have additional you know, check items around um, technology and social media. Definitely, yeah. And some people don't want to inherit the social media that exists in a business, maybe because it's got a poor history or maybe because they're going to change the name of the business. 
So then from a consumer perspective, I think you, there is some confusion uh, if a page continues to operate but the business has been sold. So in that case, you have to look at including something in your contract that actually forces, uh, where possible, the seller to actually deactivate or close down past social media accounts. The issue then is, well, what about the followers on those accounts and the likers? How do you transition them to a new page, which is very difficult when you're dealing with third parties who have a choice as to who and what they follow? Yeah, I would imagine also then there would be instances where it's potentially the retail manager or one of the pharmacy assistants or the dispensary technicians, potentially the the page manager or the platform manager for this social media. And in the sale of business, I've certainly had experience in the past where the pharmacist owner don't necessarily share um, with any expediency that the business is you know under sale of contract. So that would that would raise challenges as well because in some cases the buyer wouldn't know about these until almost you know the day before. Yes, that's that's true. And there is actually provision in contracts saying that the parties can't disclose the existence of the contract or the sale of the business without the consent of the other party. So there's always sensitivity around these transactions. And if there is particular sensitivity for whatever reason uh, from either party, so obviously a seller doesn't always want their customers to know they're moving on. And from a buyer's perspective, you want to protect the goodwill so you may not want the customers to know until late in the peak. So it is very tricky then to, as you say, transition and communicate what's going on um, when you've got kind of contract provisions and all these different platforms where you've got consumers who may or may not actively engage with the business uh, in terms of coming into the store, but they are there and they're watching. And that's very interesting with social media that people know what's going on, even if they haven't actually set foot in your business or engaged with you for some time. Absolutely correct. And would imagine that in the last, well, in the year 2020, where we've become a bit more homebound and a bit more internet requirements and, and internet savvy, that, that you are following and watching business of interest to yourself. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know in my experience that I had my son during the COVID period, so I wasn't going out much and I needed something from a chemist. And I actually, I engaged with them on Facebook. They had the product before I actually went down there. Um, now, whether or not I've subsequently been added to a mailing list or anything like that, I'm not sure. But I am now, you could say I am a customer of theirs. So if something happened to their pharmacy in terms of a transaction, uh, how would they communicate that to me? You know, maybe in a couple of months' time, I'm in a similar situation, message them and don't get a response. How does that look from the business if they're then suddenly not engaging with them? Yeah, no, I understand. It certainly um, it just opens up quite wide the, the considerations that a, a buyer and seller now has to, to look at. Um, it really does, yeah. yeah. In, in terms of the main you know, third-party platforms, your, your, your dispensary point-of-sale systems, I would imagine that, that they're a fairly tight services contract anyway. Um, they're a known entity um, to a point they're a trusted entity. So... Is it feasible that those parties are included in the data room earlier or, or are they also left kind of until the last minute to make sure that it, this actually goes ahead? Yeah, they're actually often left until the last minute. Um, 
or you know you're facing a situation where perhaps you're asking these third parties to sign non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality agreements and we're dealing with big entities here that you know are servicing a lot of pharmacies so they could have any number of transactions going on at the one time so they are still brought in late to the piece a lot of these systems though um, I find are month-to-month accounts so if they are finished up by a seller or a buyer is not continuing with them it is fairly easy to sever the relationship with, and, and introduce a new system. It just is the timing of that because obviously the buyer wants to hit the ground running and that's not always possible when you're making changes. Yeah, no, look, I, I've certainly got some experience from that going back quite a few years now ago. And, and you talk about the, you know, the, the, the quick or the brief changeover. We were, I was involved in the purchase of some pharmacies here in Victoria with the company I was working with at the time. And and initially, when we started the program, we would continue with whoever the vendor was. Um, and then over the space of the next month, you know, we would transition to the, the companies or the, the preferred um, vendor. Mm. We got to the point where we worked out it was just actually easier to bite the bullet and change it all overnight. So, uh, so basically, on the, the night that stock take was happening, we also had electricians and computer techs and uh, uh, a dispensary point of sale vendors in there and we would open next morning uh, with all the existing data but in actual fact with the new platform and and, and the business would, would put a couple of key people in there that knew this so that the existing staff you know they, they usually only found out about this a couple of days before anyway so they were already in a state of shock so yes. we just we just felt that it was easier just to bite the bullet and make it happen but have people there that knew how to use the the preferred system because when you as you'd appreciate you're buying and selling pharmacies there's multiple um uh, dispensary point of sale vendors involved in that so yeah and also i suppose your uh, connection in with medicare as well and getting your approval number into your system you actually have to have your system operating whoever you're choosing to go with your dispensing point of sale to enable your approval number to be activated uh we have had a few um mad moments where a pharmacy is trading and the approval number hasn't gone in yet because there is an issue with the dispensing system and then you've got a situation where you're having to hold claims back um so yeah yeah no not not a uh, not a fun time i'm sure so so Sarah, that probably then brings me to the point that we half discussed earlier on as i mentioned we we recorded a um, a podcast a couple of days ago around pharmacy data and cybersecurity and some of the things that, that you should consider. Um, and I'd probably like to tie this back into your employment law side of things. And, you know, there was a point in time where employment law might have been making sure that, you know, team members were, um, I guess, A, being employed under the right terms, but also working, you know, for the employer under the right terms. And, and, and does, you know, technology bring a whole new facet, uh, particularly around, security of information I, I know as a rule pharmacy is pretty good around privacy but you know you often can't control what's happening in the internet sense and uh, the one of the key points that came up in this other podcast was that you'll often walk into a pharmacy and you'll find post-it notes on the computer screen with all the password entries mm. so have, yeah. have you come across anything around this area in terms of the of the employment law side of things so definitely. So one thing that comes to mind, as you mentioned about the post-it notes, and I actually know from my own experience and working as a pharmacy assistant while I was still studying, you did know other people's codes. And I mean, I say that it sounds like, you know, shock, horror, how could that be the case? But I think it is fairly common practice. Um, you're in busy stores 
and you know you might only be a casual or over the Christmas casual to set you up as a new user can sometimes be really difficult in a busy um, time so you did know other people's codes whether in your, in your head or because there's a laminated sheet behind the cash and wrap counter and actually I was in a pharmacy last week and saw just that um, so there is a security issue from obviously the public becoming aware of that information but also tracking uh, movements on tills and that is something I have advised on a number of times where there may be a theft issue going on but the person that is uh, doing that is using someone else's code. So it then becomes very difficult to prove that that person is doing it because then they're going in as someone else. Of course, there is security cameras in a lot of pharmacies that creates its own privacy issue around where those security cameras are placed, both from an employee perspective, but also from your consumer perspective. Because if you do have customers being shown on that, uh, they need to be aware that there is CCTV footage being recorded in the pharmacy. So that is certainly uh, an issue around security. Also, one thing that's come up is labels being printed and left lying around. You then know the customer's name. Um, it might be, for example, on the script in or out counter, there might be a label sitting there for whatever reason. That's obviously very private and sensitive information, which sometimes is inadvertently you know, left for other people to see. The other massive issue that I see in employment law, and it's not just isolated to pharmacy businesses, but it, it's common in pharmacy, I guess, because it's the nature of small business still, um, and they are small businesses, and that is the expansion of what actually is the workplace. Because if you have an employee that on their Facebook page says that they work at, you know, XYZ chemist, um, suddenly the scope of their workplace has broadened and now if they are linking themselves back to their employer their conduct in social media whether that be during work or personal time is suddenly um, reflecting on the reputation of the employer. I have done a lot of work in that space where they might be making um, inflammatory comments on their Facebook page not referencing their employer but maybe saying you know my boss was you know really but because they've got a link to where they work, then it makes it very clear who their boss is. Um, so that's one issue, but also from a behaviour and conduct perspective, they're posting what they're doing on weekends, which may not be appropriate, which is then reflective of the employer. So it's really dangerous territory, and my advice um, very broadly is don't link your personal and your work together. Um, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no, it was something I learnt uh, many years ago and, and, a, and a tip for some people is that uh, I run a, a pseudonym name for my personal social media and my, my full name for any of my business accounts. And now it's not necessarily hard to potentially tie the two together, but I, I just you know, was given this advice that um, if, if you're going to run personal but you're involved in business, you know, potentially look at running two different names so that people still know who you are kind of thing. But but it's not as easy to kind of track the two of you together. So, mm. Sarah, that's been great to chat today. I, I think that whole employment law around technology and social media might need another discussion one day. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of pharmacists and, and uh, pharmacist managers out there that wouldn't have necessarily considered this or potentially have but not really sure of the ramifications. So um, so I'd love to kind of get you back in, in a couple of months' time after Christmas and maybe we have a bit more of a chat about that. But yeah, that'd be is, great. Is there any other areas or any other passions that you've got that we could uh, uh, have, have a chat with before we wrap up? 
this is an area of work that I thoroughly enjoy, and that is the applications to the Australian Community Pharmacy Authority as well as to so if some people uh, listening haven't transacted in the pharmacy world or sought an approval uh, in recent times, um, perhaps the last year or so, they may not be aware that PBS has now moved to an online portal. So gone are the days of having to send wads of information down to Canberra. Now it's all done online. Now that's very good. It means it can be done from anywhere at any time uh, and it's paper saving, of course. You don't need to wonder about the post or stand in line to submit the application. There are a lot of stories about people lining up at the ACPA to get their application in first. It also means you get immediate confirmation of receipt um, when your application is lodged, which is really good uh, for peace of mind. So I just wanted to raise that so people that aren't aware of it, they are using now this online portal. You do, it is it is a little bit tricky to navigate at first. Uh, and if you are using a solicitor, then they'll probably be doing it for you anyway. But I just thought I'd flag that um, as another way that technology has come into this space. Yeah, no, thanks for that. I, 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 we did have that in our notes. And again, it might be something we can discuss in a, in a bit more depth in the new year. Mm. But I, I guess on that note, Sarah, if someone uh, listening today wanted to get in contact with you, what, what's the best way to do that? And we'll include these links in the um, in the show notes. So my business, Vitality Law Australia, has both a Facebook and Instagram page. So you can find it uh, with the handle Vitality Law Australia on both of those. For me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn under my name, Sarah Stoddart, or feel free to engage with me by email, sarah at vitalitylawaustralia.com. Thanks, Sarah. That's been great to chat with you today. And uh, I look forward to potentially chatting again in the new year. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate it.